Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, it can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Ciao. And I'm saying ciao because I'm speaking to you from Rome. I know, lucky me. But however, when, you, when you're listening to me say this to you, I'll already be home. Even if you're like super keen and you listen to this as soon as it's published, I'll still be home because I'm flying home tonight. But I've been here for the weekend shooting in Rome video, music video, and oh, just have an absolute ball. What a ridiculously beautiful place Rome is. I feel very spoilt. This is where I am. We've been... Um, wandering around, finding beautiful places, which obviously if you've been to Rome, you'll know are flipping everywhere. Uh, I'm here with Sophie Miller, who's directing the video who I've worked with since uh, Take Me Home. And as I'm talking to you, I also have a very big hairdo going on. <laughs> uh, I think most of the hair's mine, although it could be 50% someone else's. I've had things clipped in. Not quite sure what's going on up there, but it looks pretty fabulous. That's my friend Lisa. Lisa Lauder, who's done that, who's done every video with me since the beginning, bar two, which isn't bad, is it? It's a pretty good innings of like over 20 years of working together now. And wow, Rome is just the most spectacular place. Richard's here with me and we first came to Rome when we just got married. It was our honeymoon. We had three days here because uh, we only had, we had Sonny at home. He was only 14 months. So we didn't want to be away too long. So yeah, we had three nights together in Rome and I just was so struck by it. If you haven't been here, it's really difficult to articulate how extraordinary it is because you're sort of 
approach, I don't know, a roundabout and there'll be trams going past and lots of cars and then the backdrop will be this huge, mighty, ancient building and obviously, you know, everybody knows Rome for the ruins but what's extraordinary is how much of it actually still looks amazing and big and bold and beautiful and it's just this spectacular backdrop to the city and it's everywhere, everywhere you turn you bump into the past and so much of it has remained. It's just incredible. Uh, so yes, we've been shooting all day yesterday and finishing up today. So I'm going to start the day going to a cemetery actually, which I'm looking forward to. I love a good graveyard. And yes, what's happening with the podcast this week? I hear you say, wow. Oh my goodness. Most amazing guest. So um, my producer, Claire, sent me a text one day, very excited, saying I've just heard the most amazing woman speaking on Radio 4. And she was referring to today's guest, Sabrina Cohen-Hatton. So the, just sometimes you get these people you meet where the more you know about them, the more extraordinary and amazing they become. If all you knew what Sabrina was up to now, with her being um, Chief Fire Officer of West Sussex um, Fire Department and, you know, already being a, a female uh, Fire chief is a chief officer, sorry, is an extraordinary thing because it's you're already in the minority. But her journey to get there is extraordinary. And she's also changed through her research and through it, um, the findings of her research. She's actually changed how um, emergency services respond to emergencies because she found that 80% of accidents were happening through human error and that there were ways to tweak responses so that people would be safer so she's actually I mean I created award-winning changes within the emergency services that's extraordinary too but her beginning into the fire service was also extraordinary because she applied to over 30 fire departments before she actually got given a job at 18 and this was following a period of homelessness so when Sab was only nine her dad very sadly died and her mother um spiralled into lots of mental health issues, which culminated in it being intolerable for Sab to continue living at home. So she left home before she was 16 and then slept on the streets for a couple of years. And that's just kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, the idea of being homeless is something that we, you know, you, you walk past homeless people all the time, but that actual divide between having a roof over your head and not is sometimes... It's not as far away as you might think. And the fact that she's managed to sort of take this tough childhood and become a very positive adult and someone who's actually creating a legacy that changes things for the better, I think is pretty amazing. It's not everybody's response to being dealt with tough hand, is it? To actually kind of want to make things better. So, well, she's going to say it better than I ever could. So I'm going to leave you with... The chat with Sabrina and I, but um, it was an absolute pleasure to meet her. And thank you to you for for the podcast, so that I have the excuse of sitting and chatting to these amazing women. Thank you so much. Uh, right, I'm going to continue packing up my clothes for the day while we have a listen. I've got um, a little bag full of several costume changes. I did it yesterday as well, just getting changed like in the back of a car and in loads of restaurants and stuff, just so that we can make the, the uh, video as sumptuous and ridiculous as possible these are things i like and the song is called lost in the sunshine i'm doing the video for and the sun is shining so 
All is right in the world. I'll see you on the other side. Well, firstly, welcome, Sabrina. It's so nice to meet you. You as well. Thank you for having me. <laughs> How are you doing today? Really good. Really good. The sun is shining. You know what? It's put me in such a good mood. Yeah. I feel like I needed a bit of spring. It's taken quite a while to get oh my God. <laughs> Well, I did have to double check because I didn't know what that strange orb was in the sky initially. But Tell yeah. me about it. The blue skies. <laughs> and also, I have to say, you're, there's some people um, I invite on the podcast. And then the more research I do with them, the more I feel like there's a temptation in me just to sort of sit back in awe. Which would make you feel really weird and also be a really horrible <laughs> listen as a podcast. But your story and the things you've done and are doing is pretty flipping incredible. Oh, thank you. So thank you so much for coming over because it's just been a complete delight to sort of get to know you more through your books and through listening to things you've done. And then kind of, you've really got the wind behind you, I think, in terms of like when people read about it and how you're actually changing the world for good. Oh, thank you. I love people like you being on <laughs> the planet at the same time as me. So thank you. So what's up, the, you know, what are you up to at the moment? Where do we find you? Oh my goodness me, it's a really busy time at the moment, but if people want to find me, I'm on Instagram, on at Dr underscore Sab underscore Cohen Hatton, and then I'm on Twitter as well. I've just joined TikTok, which is scary. Oh, how are you finding I know. that? Uh, I, I, the trouble is I'm not a teenage <laughs> child, so trying to navigate the side is not the easiest thing in the world, mm. but I'm getting there. I you think. do have a teenage child, maybe they can help manage your tiktok <laughs> she has been recruited yeah that's what i did with mine actually i had a bit of time where i was uh, basically i'll try and make this as brief as possible but i have a tiktok i wasn't really using it mm -hmm. my then i think he was 12 whatever they hopefully he was allowed a legal age to do tiktok probably not he basically started to build my followers and then switched the entire account to his name <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I needed it back for something I was doing. So I said to him, you need to help me. Like, I don't really know what to do on TikTok. It's not really very me. So we did this thing together where he would ask me any question he felt like asking me at any time and just film it. And it would really make me laugh because he'd ask me really strange stuff like mm -hmm. apropos of nothing. And some of them, I don't know if you've seen this on TikTok, but this is like old lady me. I would film it like, you know, we'd see you first and you'd speak. But he would do this thing where he'd start with the floor and sweep up. And I was like, why are you doing that? He said, because then people engage because they want to see what happens next. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. And it's true. All the ones he did where it started with like something random and then swept around to find me. More people would watch than the ones we just started with me going, hi, here I am. Isn't that strange? Isn't that crazy? I, I do worry slightly about what it's doing to people's ability to focus mm. with TikToks because everything has got to be like the next two seconds or the next three seconds or they completely lose engagement. Yep. And my teenager, my daughter Gabby, I can literally see her zoning out when I try and say anything that's longer than a three-word sentence. Oh, yeah. So it's almost like... Like you've got to shout an order and then hope that she's heard it because yes. if it's more than a if it's more than three words she's like no scroll on mum that's so true yeah can I swipe you've done you me now. yeah exactly <laughs> well actually I think that happens too with things that you watch like the pace of everything edits and everything if you watch an old film it feels really slow a lot of them because they just the pace you don't think of life as having a rhythm but it really does yeah um, so I've been reading your book, The Gender Bias. So this is, when did this come out? Not very long ago at all, right? No, no, not very long ago at all. Um, it came out in March, March 2nd. Okay, so it's, it's pretty recent, but it's pretty phenomenal. And I imagine this is years of research. Yeah, there's a lot that went into writing that book. Um, I've unpicked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of research studies to try to look at how people are experiencing gender and the way that it's impacting on the way that we see the world and the way that people respond to us as well. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and I have had what feels like a lifetime of people responding in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm in the fire service. My day job is a chief fire officer. So it's a job that not many women do, let alone having kind of that level of leadership. There are actually more chiefs called Chris than women chiefs. So not that I've got anything against Chris's, by the way. I know some really <laughs> You're just more ones, likely to meet Chief Officer Chris than... Exactly, than a woman, woman chief. Um, and so people would respond in a way, and I'd think, oh, it's just me. I'm just being sensitive, you know, mm-hmm. or I must have completely misread that. And it happens time after time. And it's only when I started to speak to other women and they were kind of describing the same experience that I thought, actually, this isn't just one single droplet that's happening here. This is actually a load of droplets that are making up a river. This is real. And then when I started to look at the research, it was like a tsunami of data that sits behind the experience that we're all having Mm -hmm. that people all think it's just them or they're just being sensitive. And that's why, for me, that book was really important to write. But, of course, the other piece, when people think about bias, they think about it being something that's bad, that's wrong and that's shameful. Um, And they also think that it's something that, you know, particularly when we're talking about gender in this concept, they think it's just guys that have got a gender bias. And it's not, actually. The reality is biases are something that we all have because of the way that we absorb information in the world. Mm -hmm. Our brain categorizes similar experiences and similar things together and we're constantly having experiences that relate to gender and experiences of women and experiences of men and experiences of different jobs and what people do and and where you sit in the world and so that all gets kind of put in our little categories and then those categories are what our brain uses as a a frame of reference as a go-to to navigate the world so they become our frame of reference they become the rules of engagement they become the shortcuts that our brain uses all the time and they're the basis of our stereotypes Um, and we all have them and if we want to challenge them and do something about them then I really feel strongly that we also we can't do anything about anyone else's you can't you Mm -hmm. know you can say it you can inform you can educate you can talk about things but the only one that you can really affect is your own yeah and I think it's interesting you say that bias is seen as a negative but actually it's just a a, a lot of it's a functioning tool we haven't got time in the day-to-day world to stop and constantly address every everything that happens to us along the way going I'm just checking I filled in these gaps here and I just want to check that that's actually accurate (laughs) yeah that wouldn't work but when it comes to I mean specifically you've said the barriers that hold women back so Mm -hmm. if we're talking about it in that regard and how bias is actually given us things to carry that we can actually with help Mm -hmm. can all put it down men women everybody all together absolutely then that's actually something that's really worth unpicking and what I find really interesting is some of the stuff you know, it's hard to read, but you actually can think, well, I can sort of understand that. So mm-hmm. when it came to your role in the fire service and how you and your husband, when both, you know, both work in the same industry, mm-hmm. but the reaction people might get is to your husband, oh, that's really brave, how wonderful, and to you, God, that's scary, what a risk job, how, you know, aren't you worried if you have a child? Mm-hmm. That stuff is disappointing, but I kind of understand that. But I think the thing that I find really always blow my mind a bit is how we all buy into it even if we're actively trying to unpick it yeah there's a bit where you talk about women taking on the sort of um for want of a better term mother load of uh, like the um, domestic roles in the house and setting the emotional tone of families Mm. and all these kind of things things we we do and continue to do but there's a bit we talk about when if we say like if you know you're your partner, your partner, your husband says, I'm going to do some of those roles. Mm. You might helicopter and say, you're not actually doing it quite the way I want or actually can I redo it? Partly because it's so intrinsic to 
the sort of idea of of being an adult woman that you'd be good at these things that mm. the idea of having it taken away from you might question oh who am I if the things I think I'm supposed to be good at I'm not even doing yeah it's so true <laughs> and I do you know I found myself doing it more than I was comfortable with with admitting to be honest with yeah. you yeah um, and especially when Gabby was young especially when she was really really young and it would be things like you know I would complain about the mental load of needing to organize everything and do everything and Mike would say things like well tell me what I can do and I'll do it and I'd be like I didn't have to tell you what to do <laughs> why can't you just know yeah you know and we get really frustrated about these things so it'd be things like you know getting Gabby ready for school or packing a lunchbox or sorting something out and I'd be like, yeah, that's great, do that. And then I'd be helicoptering over his shoulder going, oh, no, don't do it that way. Oh, no, that's not how you do your, to do her hair. You've got to do it this way. Or don't put that in a lunchbox, put this in a lunchbox. Yeah. And you'd, bless him, I'd see him dying a little bit inside every time <laughs> I'd do it. Um, and I didn't realise it at the time, but I was actually kind of gatekeeping those roles. Mm. And when I looked into it, I was really interested because there's a lot of research around this. Um, and it shows that when women do that, one, I mean, you're not helping, frankly, because you're not giving your partner the opportunity to be able to really contribute and feel like they're making a contribution because you're almost going kind of parent-child with your partner rather than having an equal, equal, uh, play, an equal play in it. But also when you do that, Women are judged on their ability to be a good mother, to be a good, uh, to be good at your job, to be able to do everything, to be able to have everything. Yet, you know, you kind of take your child to school, and because I'd always be working, you get the comments at the gate like, "Oh, whose mum are you again?" Oh, the the biggest kicker I think is, "Oh, you never get that time back." You know, I don't know how you could do it. I mean, you know, what what Which kind is of response? It's extraordinarily rude thing to say, by the way. It's so rude. It's so rude. But you feel like you're being judged on more than just what you do you're yeah. being judged on everything and so making sure those other details are right as well actually it's a very human thing to do because mm. it's kind of protecting your self-esteem when those things are so tightly tied to your identity you're also protecting your sense of identity as well so yeah. it, while it's unhelpful it's a lot more human um but interestingly when gabby was small I went back to work after um, just after six months and I was an officer by then so I'd be working kind of nine to five and I'd do my on calls on top and Mike was um, was still on a station so he'd do two days two nights and then he'd have four days off and so I still wanted Gabby to do all the parent child classes mm -hmm. and you know like the mute the music toddler class and the you know the baby massage and all of that kind of stuff I didn't want her to miss out and so Mike said well don't worry I'll do it you don't have to worry about taking time off work I'll take her brilliant or so I thought he went and when he'd come back he'd be really quiet and really withdrawn and I'd be like you all right what's the matter and he was like I just I'm really trying he said but I just no one seems to want me there. And I was like, what do you mean no one wants me there? And he kind of described this scenario where he'd go in, he'd try to make conversation and people would be polite, but it'd be like one or two word answers, a couple of sentences here and there, but no one would ever engage him. Mm. And he'd try to break into the conversation and then he was worried. He's like, oh my goodness, what if they think that I'm trying to hit on them? So he would kind of pull back. And I think there was a certain amount of resentment to him being a man in that space, which, you know, I can kind of understand if they want to talk about breastfeeding or the, you know, the latest incident that they had and those kind of things, I can understand. But these are parent-child classes. It's, you know, it's a, it's a music class for babies. 
And so he'd find it really difficult to break into that space. And there was some really interesting research done in Belgium that found the same thing with stay-at-home dads. And it would be even comments from health professionals like, oh, mum knows best or where's mum today? Yeah. Or mum will know how to do this. That actually was something that the men in the study found to be really kind of emasculinating. And it would question their validity as a, as a parent yeah. because they were a father as opposed to a mother. Yeah. And so actually as a society, I think we've got much further to go to make it as comfortable for men to be doing domestic work and pick up the child rearing in the same capacity that women currently do so that we can push on further in the workplace. Yes, I'm nodding emphatically. I think, as you say, there's so much to do, so far to go with that kind of thing. Even subtle things as well, like um, I, I think in my line of work, I've been asked a lot of times about who's looking after my kids when I'm mm. away, but I don't think Richard's been asked once who's mm. got the kids when he's working. It's yeah. assumed, I guess, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. <laughs> it is so true. Mm. It is so true. And, you know, that point about risk, that was that was a conversation that me and Mike had at a party. Mm. And, you know, Mike has never been asked, oh, what about your kids? Isn't that a risky job? Not once, but it's something that I get all the time. And I can remember, I put it in the book, actually, when I was being um, interviewed for... It was a lovely primetime slot and it was a lovely interview and everything was really feel-good, which in my line of work, if you're doing something feel-good, it's quite rare because normally <laughs> when my face is on telly, there's been a disaster or something. So it's nice to do something positive. But the interviewer was dutifully going through the list of questions and then said, so, Sabrina, how are you juggling your new role as a chief fire officer with being a mum? And I looked at them completely blank-faced and just said, well, exactly the same way that my predecessor coped with being a dad. <laughs> and, he, and they kind of looked at me and went, yeah, that was a really silly question. Please don't use that. Can you cut that, please? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just that that's expected of yeah. guys, isn't it? But I, and it pains me to say, because it's 2023 now, yeah. that women are still regularly getting that question because that's the assumption it is so we've still got a very long way to go and actually I love the fact that when you were asked that question you pushed back on it in a way that had humor so it was gentle so no one was sort of humiliated but it just was a bit of a <laughs> come on really <laughs> so you mentioned that your day job doesn't often have so much of these sort of lovely positivity bits when yeah. you're on telly but I just wanted to sort of surmise that's why I've got your book here because mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure I correctly sum up where you are at with your job because sure. obviously you are Chief Fire Officer, but you also have a first class honours in psychology, a master's in international fire service development and a PhD in behavioural neuroscience. I didn't want to get any of that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you also work as an honorary research fellow at Cardiff as mm -hmm. well, Cardiff yeah. University. So what at the moment, what does it look like in terms of your work? How does it divvy up with all the different roles that you have on uh, a perennial juggle i think mm. is probably the best way to sum it up um my day job as a chief fire officer is the primary work you know that kind of takes up a huge amount of my time but i also do the research then alongside that and okay. i've got a number of research strands that i do i've got a number of phd students under us at the moment i co-supervise a small research group at cardiff university along with professor rob honey who was my phd supervisor and a professor that i've worked with now for oh what are we 2023 for 13 years oh that's cool yeah he's fabulous um and we've got uh, a, a couple of research programs that predominantly look at decision making under pressure 
Um, so we're doing stuff with emergency services. Our research that we've done kind of completely changed the national landscape for how we do decision making in the mm-hmm. emergency services, which was just amazing and I've really loved that side of things um we're looking at doing similar stuff in medicine at the moment as well and I've just got a new research program which is a bit of a kind of passion project of mine um looking at dogs and dog learning and behavior and particularly dogs with extreme behavioral problems um and how they can be rehabilitated dogs that are bound for euthanasia oh wow yeah and that must be close to your heart as a Dog lover and dog owner. Oh, it is very close to my heart. Dogs are so important to me. So important. I mean, I've got three. Okay. For starters. Um, but my, when I, um, you probably know, but many moons ago when I was a teenager, I had quite a challenging start in life and I experienced homelessness um, from the age of, just before I was 16 to the age of about 18. And I had a stray dog, stray dog. I was a stray girl. It kind of worked. Um, and I know many people had a view, certainly was my experience at the time, on homelessness and dogs, and people weren't always that kind about it, but that dog was the only social and emotional connection I had at a time when I was otherwise completely isolated. So that dog-human relationship, that bonding for me is hugely important, and it's a relationship that I really, really cherish. Um, So I spend a huge amount of time with my dogs, and I really believe in the power of the human dog relationship um and in fact i'm an ambassador now for an amazing charity called street vet that do outreach veterinary work for people who are experiencing homelessness who have pets as well God, dogs. What a brilliant charity yeah dogs they've got a couple of cats and even a rabbit on their books actually so oh, really? yeah they're wonderful absolutely wonderful well so, that yeah. is uh, i mean i i loved hearing about and reading about your relationship with your dog menace oh and i mean just for context for people listening, so after your father died when you were nine mm-hmm. and your mother's mental health deteriorated, it became possible for you to be living at home and so you found yeah. yourself sleeping rough. And this was a period of time where you have said you felt completely unseen and mm-hmm. very, very alone. Yeah. And it's an extraordinary thing to me to think, first of all, of a girl that young on their own on the streets. And I wondered how that... I know that for a long time you didn't even speak about it. Mm. Was it like t- over 20 years where you didn't yeah. even speak about it? Yeah. So it's still relatively recent that it's become something that you're so open about, but it's so important to talk about these things. And I think particularly with homelessness, it's I know that homeless charities can struggle because not everybody will say, oh, I know someone that's homeless mm. or I've experienced it. So, you know, giving, bringing humanity into that is mm. really, really important, ongoing. But also as your daughter has now entered her teenage years. Has it changed anything about how you think of yourself at that time? Yeah, it has, absolutely. And I, I look at her now at 13, and I think, wow, it was a, I was two years older than you the first time I had no bed to sleep in for the night, and I was sleeping in a shop doorway, shivering and being really frightened and alone. Um, and it does, it really, it challenges me more now when I see her as someone that I love and I cherish and I want to nurture um and and to think of to see it in that capacity because I can almost see myself through that lens now um it's it's hard because every person who's experiencing homelessness or who has experienced homelessness 
has the capacity to love. They'll have people that they love. They'll have been loved at some point or another. There's an awful lot of absence of love in those relationships because people don't find themselves homeless unless they're completely socially isolated. But everyone has the capacity for. And so I think it's brought a new, um, a new sadness for me into that space to really think of that. And actually, when I look back at those times, some of the people who showed me the most compassion and the most humanity were also people who were experiencing homelessness. And they were those that others would cross the street to try to avoid. Mm. So there is something to me that is hugely important about how we see other people um, and whether we see past just the way that someone is presenting yeah. and we see the person that sits behind it with all of their humanity and all of their potential. Um, and that's why for me now talking about my experience of homelessness is so important. And it was hard and it's still raw. You know, I still find myself with my, you know, my hair standing on end sometimes when I'm, re when I'm relating some of the experiences to people and you have that sicky feeling in the pit of your stomach and you kind of think about it for hours afterwards. But there are people who are still going through that today. There are people who are still in the same place that I once was and it's really important to me that they know that your circumstances don't determine where you end up just the position that you start from mm -hmm. um, and that's why I talk about it and actually since talking about it there are lots of people that have kind of got in touch with me to tell me that they'd been homeless once and that they didn't feel like they could talk about it and one one of the most meaningful messages that I had came to me via somebody else and they forwarded the the message and it said that um, it said uh, something along the lines of, wow, Deputy Assistant Commissioner in London Fire Brigade, as, as I was back then, um, had, it, had solved the big issue for three years and was homeless. Now maybe I won't be so embarrassed to tell people that I solved the big issue. And I literally, I had that and I just burst out crying. And Mike was there, he's like, what's the matter? What's the matter? What's happened? And I was like, it's so lovely, look. Um, you know, and it was really, really meaningful to have that. Um, but I make no bones about it, it's still raw and it's still painful. But if it feels like that for me, I know that it's 10 times worse for other people. So if I don't, then who? Yeah, and I guess other pe people who are in the situation don't often get any sort of platform to speak about what they're going through at all. Mm. And even hearing you speak about it and when I was hearing about, you know, how the big issue works and how you're saying everybody that sells the big issue is basically being a little entrepreneur mm. and... It made me think, oh, golly, you know, I must, I must remember to buy it more often, actually. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, when, when you see someone homeless on the street, how, what do you do when you walk past them? I usually speak to them. And for me, that was one of the biggest things. You know, people kind of walked past me like I was a ghost, like I wasn't even there. And, you know, I'd been punched and kicked and spat at. Um, but I'd also experienced some really human responses from people. But by far, the most rehumanizing thing was for someone to make eye contact and smile and say hello, ask me my name. You know, that for me was, was more important than everything else. And, uh, I, and you know... We're all human. None of us are going to be able to kind of swoop in and fix everything for every person that we walk past. And neither do people expect that. Um, but just some humanity makes a really big difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, when you said, like, you asked me my name, <laughs> that got me, actually. I think, um, you know, just my own experience, I, I always do make a point to make eye contact and smile and say hi. But I think I'm trying to work out what it is that makes you not respond in any, any what may more meaningful sometimes. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because we're sometimes encouraged to have an idea that there might be, I don't know, an unpleasant exchange if you take it further or if people might be wanting something from you that you can't give. Mm. I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. Well, I often get asked that question about whether, you know, you should give money um, or how you respond if someone asks for money and you don't have it. And I think it's really easy to just try to avoid the interaction by looking away. And I think that there's, I think it's, it's more powerful for me to say, I'm really sorry, I haven't got any change at the moment. Yeah. You know, that for me was, it was always better because someone's acknowledging you, they're speaking to you and they're seeing you as a human being. Yeah, Um, agreed. It's really easy to get defensive and to avoid a situation that we think is going to result in conflict, whether that's, it doesn't have to be conflict in terms of arguing with someone, but even, you know, a kind of negative exchange. Um, And that's, it's very, very seldom the case. Very often our own assumptions of what that interaction is going to be like is very, very different to the reality of it. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I think, um, I don't know, I suppose I'm thinking back to you in that situation and finding it extraordinary that people could see such a young girl on the streets and still look the other way. That's, mm. that's pretty stark. It was awful. I mean, I'll never forget once my teacher saw me selling the big issue and crossed the road to try and avoid me. Um, and I can remember looking down at my shoes and bursting into tears. And I knew then at that point, literally, literally nobody cared. Um, and thank 
heavens, I had menace with me because I just sat and cuddled into him and he started nuzzling into me and licking my face and licking my eyeballs and all of the stuff that he would usually do. Um, and just for that moment, I didn't feel that alone anymore. And Shame on I, that teacher. Shame yeah. Shame on that teacher. I mean, you know, I look back, I think maybe he didn't have a pound or something, but, you know. <laughs> no, come on. I think that's, yeah. But so by the time you were 18, you had decided I'm going to apply to a job mm-hmm. in the fire service and it took over 30 different places to find someone that accepted you. Is that right? Yes. It was super competitive. So when I applied, there was something like 9,000 applicants for 12 jobs. You know, it was super, super competitive. So it's no good just kind of going into the process in one and waiting until the end to get rejected and then starting another one. So I was kind of firing off applications and going all around the place to to get in and I I eventually got in. Um, And it's something that I've never looked back from. I loved it. But, you know, I didn't talk about my experience of homelessness, um, mainly because I was afraid that people would judge me for it. I was afraid of the stigma. Um, And I also just wanted to start again. I wanted people to take me for me and not who they thought I was. And that's one of the great things about the Fire and Rescue Service is that, for me, they saw past what didn't present like a brilliant prospect on paper and they took me on the strength of who they believed I could be. And that's a principle that I try and live by now. But it, it wasn't easy moving out of, you know, it's not... Overcoming homelessness isn't just about the physical resources and having a roof over your head. There was a huge kind of emotional and social journey that I went on after that. And in the book, I've written a chapter called The Glass Breadline, which talks about the impact of poverty on women and how difficult it can be in particular for it's difficult for everybody Mm. to break through the glass bread line and escape poverty but it is particularly difficult for women um and I read a statistic that really stuck with me um and, and I kind of felt some of the impact of it actually and that's if you're on free school meals today um by the time you're 25 only 28% of men will earn more than the national living wage which is far too low mm. but only 18% of women will also earn more than the national living wage, which, again, is far too low. And there are a number of really complex and challenging reasons for that, not least the the impact of being um, heading up a single-parent household mm-hmm. and how that makes you significantly more likely to be experiencing poverty than if you're in a, uh, in a two-parent household. And the numbers of single-mother households are significantly more than single-father households. So you have that whole dynamic that comes into it but women are overrepresented in low wage sectors um, with 17% of women compared to just 11% of men and even within those sectors if you're uh, a woman doing the same job as a man you're likely to get 3% less for doing basically identical work so it is very challenging from that respect just in terms of the practicalities for women to pass through that glass breadline. but for me one of the biggest things that I found was the way that that experience of poverty had made me feel so I'd go into a workplace then and I, I would look back on my experiences of homelessness and I would always see myself as less than other people around you. Um, and it was really challenging. And I think that's also one of the reasons why it took me so long to start to talk about it. Because I'd see other people in my industry, I'd see other leaders, I'd see other officers who were these amazing people who always seemed to know what to do and what to say, who never seemed to put a foot wrong. And I'd only ever see their successes. I'd never see them make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I used to think, wow, there's stuff 
that makes me feel so vulnerable. You know, that experience makes me feel so vulnerable. There are regrets that I have through those experiences. So how can I ever, how can I match up to you? And the reality, and I think that this plays into the glass breadline piece, the reality is I get everyone wants to put their best foot forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. we all want to talk about our successes. But actually, when you're only presenting that, it's like you're presenting a showreel. It's like you're presenting, you know, your kind of one picture that makes it onto your Instagram feed yeah, rather yeah. than the reality of the 500 awful ones looking up your nose with your double chin <laughs> that you've been. Um, but the reality is every success is preceded by a number of failures, a number of mistakes, a number of misdirections and squiggly paths there. But if we're only ever seeing that kind of the prize, we're not seeing the journey, then I think that it makes that prize look more unattainable. And so for me, there is huge value in talking about your mistakes and owning your failures with as much conviction as you'll own your successes because it's more real and it makes the journey there for other people more real. And for people like me who've come from extreme poverty, seeing that it can be a journey, it doesn't just have to be something that you're born with or that you have to have this experience or you have to have gone to that school or you can't even break through. Being able to see the reality Mm. that failure is okay and that you don't have to necessarily just show the success, you've got the rest of the messy stuff behind it, that does make it an easier journey. And you know what? There's a values thing in there as well. Because I will learn so much more about someone from seeing the way they respond to a single failure than I would do from seeing them respond to 100 successes. So it means more to me. I agree with that. And I think think also, though, you you know, if you have experienced homelessness and you have seen it do nothing but put you on the back foot, Mm. to put it lightly, I think it's completely instinctive to keep that quiet until you're ready to share it Mm. so whilst I agree that it's when you feel at a place where you feel safe to be open is brilliant but Mm. we do a lot of things to protect ourselves don't we yeah as we go and if you didn't you were the same person then as you are now and if you felt like then was that was the time to reveal it then that's the time to reveal it yeah you know not everything has to be out there all the time no because maybe it was quite nice not have not sharing that for a long time too and I think I needed that time to heal a yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think sharing it when I did was more powerful because I was ready to share it. Yeah. Um, it was tough. It was scary. It was... I was petrified. I'll never forget the day when, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I decided now is the point in time I'm going to share it. And I did it on, in a tweet. And I must have written out that tweet and deleted it and rewritten it with about one word different about <laughs> 15 or 20 times. And I was on my something like my fourth gin and tonic before I had the courage to press send. And I was like, oh no, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And I kind of put it down and my phone went ping, 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 like popcorn. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I can't look, I can't look. And then I looked and it was like, oh, oh. Oh, that's really nice. It wasn't at all what I'd been catastrophizing about. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I got the odd bit, don't get me wrong, but that's always going to be inevitable. But, you know, the vast majority was really positive and I feel like I've been able to do a lot of good through my work through that. Um, I'm an ambassador now for The Big Issue, so I try and do a lot of work in the social justice space as well. And it's something that's really important to me um, and something that I hope I'll continue to drive for some time yet. Oh, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> um, I did wonder, though, when you're someone that's been so solely responsible for your own fate, mm. in what way is that really 
what what does it give you that's good and what does it give you that's bad um the bit that it gives you that's good i think is that security and the knowledge that whatever happens nothing is as bad as what you've already been through and that you don't have to rely on other people to be able to move past that so it's that sense of confidence and comfort in your own independence um on the downside i think it makes you feel like you can do everything by yourself and you don't <laughs> you don't need anyone else so it's exactly the same problem in a in a funny kind of way um in as much as it can make you feel it can be quite difficult sometimes to let your guard down with others and to to really trust so i can be quite slow to do that in that space and i have to work really hard at it you know i'm really conscious and mm. careful um about kind of making sure that if my shutters are automatically coming down I'll, I'll stick a wedge in there to kind of keep them back up so i'm i'm not i'm not doing that as much um but i think you know the positives are definitely that you know that whatever happens you can push through that tomorrow's going to be another day and you'll come through it um but i think at the same time you have to be very careful not to shut other people out yeah because you're so you're being so forcefully capable and yeah. resilient and that makes it hard to let the vulnerability in yeah i think I, the way i describe it sometimes is a high functioning trauma response <laughs> <laughs> well there must be quite a lot of a trauma response you have to deal with with your day job mm. um because obviously you're so exposed to stress and um some days must be you must have seen and experienced things that have been horrific when you're responding to fires mm. firstly i think it's really amazing and incredible of your instinct that you, you actually wanted to help people that's a lovely a lovely thing that stirred in you from all of your experience mm. in your your childhood and when you're a young person but also I wonder how how you deal with this, the stress of that, and particularly when you're... So when you had your baby, when you had Gabby, mm -hmm. what stage were you at with your firefighting career at that point? The day I went off on maternity was the day that I uh, became an officer substantively. So I'd been doing it kind of temporarily. I had a temporary promotion. And the day that I went on maternity was the day that they went, yep, that's permanent. Yay, ah, which is fantastic. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. <laughs> Um, so by the time she was born and I was back into work, you'd kind of do your day job running a department, but then, um, I'd be on call and the kind of jobs that I would go to as a, as a station commander at that time would be the more serious ones where there was a life risk or there was a risk to firefighters. So it would be a, a fire in a house where, you know, somebody's trapped or a car car crash where people are trapped in there so um you I found that I tended probably to see more of the trauma at that phase of my career as well and it was an interesting one you know because having Gabby made it completely change my perspective on the world and on the one hand nothing else in the universe mattered as much as she did so it was a real kind of perspective shift but I think because of my job I really recognized and respected the fragility of life and I had a newfound appreciation for our own mortality when I had someone in the world that meant as much to me as as your first born child does my only born child she's my only child um and so I found that I found that a, a, quite a beautiful duality in many respects because I think it increased my propensity to love but also made me more fearful of the loss as well. 
And so I'd, I'd do things where, you know, for example, I'd go out and I'd be, on a, I'd be on a fire all night and then I'd come in and I'd jump straight in the shower because when you've, you know, you've been at a fire, you're full of contaminants. I wouldn't want any of that in the house or, or anywhere near Gabby, so I'd get straight in the shower. I'd wash myself off and then I'd just poke my head around her bedroom door and I'd just look over just to make sure she's still breathing, you know? Stupid little things like that. <laughs> of course she's still breathing, but you just have to see it for yourself at that very moment in time to give you that kind of reassurance. Um, and so it certainly, I think, makes me appreciate just the smaller things in life, you know, the way that the colours look on a on a spring morning, like this morning when you, you know, you're walking past a, a, a tree and it's in blossom and, and just those little moments mm. that you otherwise walk past and you forget about completely. And it's not until all of the trees in the world have disappeared that you'd kind of look back and go, oh, I wish I'd stopped and really smelt that, smelt the, that flower on the tree, you mm. know. So it's just, it makes you more thoughtful, I think, about those little things. But... You know, it is it is challenging and mental health in the emergency services for all frontline responders is a real challenge. And um, MIND did a brilliant piece of research a while ago that found that people in the emergency services are more likely than the general population to suffer with their mental health, but they're also less likely than the general population to uh, ask for help. Mm. And when they unpick that, actually being a first responder becomes a huge part of your identity. It's yeah. not just a job, it's what you do, it's how you see yourself. So to be the one that is usually the protector, it can be quite a big thing, thing then to say, I think I need protecting, I'm, I'm struggling. And also, I think we see the extremes of mental health. We see the after effects of trauma. We get called to deal with the aftermath of someone that's attempted suicide or that's committed suicide and, and those kind of experiences. So you do see the very kind of extreme side of mental health. Mm. And if you can't relate to that bit directly, you know, saying any of it can sound scary. Yeah. So it has been a challenge. I think we've come on a really long way, um, certainly even over the past five years in the emergency services around that and started to encourage more conversations. And I certainly see more mature conversations around mental health now and, and, and a reduction in that stigma, which is a really, really positive step. Yeah, I agree. I think the way that we speak about mental health has shifted enormously, mm. uh, all for the better. But I think I can totally understand why, if you're a first responder, you feel like part of the job should be being able to cope with all those things. Mm. So actually you feel like, well, if I pull at that thread that says that I didn't cope with that, what does that mean about the rest of my ability to do my job? And that mm. can be really tricky, can't it, if you have to hold, you know, hold that up to yourself? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that hold people together, and you sometimes don't know if you're allowed to yeah. let that go. Do you know what yeah. I mean? But the reality is, unless you pull at the thread, you can't tie it back up again. No, that's true. So it's really important, I think, to embrace these things and to recognise that it's not, you know, finding something hard or finding something overwhelming is no weakness. It's human. Absolutely. And Absolutely. sometimes you just need to sit with that feeling as well, and it's okay to feel rubbish about something it's okay to say that was really hard and yeah. to you know to have a have an evening where you just think right I just need to turn off from the rest of the world and just feel crap for the night that's Absolutely. okay yeah let that and feeling then, come yeah and then once it's come it'll pass yeah and that's when you can start building on what you do next yeah and talking about having just knowing what works for you in terms of like who you need to speak to or the yeah. thing you do that just gives you that space yeah um there's so many things I want to ask you about, but I think I'm going to go back to, I promise I asked this of lots of my guests, but also I would also ask if your husband was here. When you had your baby, was there a part of you that thought about maybe 
changing the way you were working? Um, in terms of the job or... Yeah, all of it, because, you no, know... I went on turbo. <laughs> <laughs> I started my PhD the day that she was born... The, the, the Sorry, day what? she was actually born. Yeah, that was my It my sounded start like you said date. I started a PhD the day I had a baby. I did. <laughs> I didn't do a lot that day, you know, just to be frank. But, um, you know, the, the, the PhD started the day that she was born. Um, and so, you know, the first couple of months were re- reviewing literature and things like that. And I would speak to, rather than... <laughs> I know normal people would, like, read children's books, but I was like, I could do that, or I could read her this neuroscience paper, because then I'll be able to read it, and I'll save time. <laughs> When she started talking, we were doing animals. It was really funny because she kept calling um, hippopotamus a hippocampus. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew some of it had stuck. Some of it gone in. Some of it had stuck. <laughs> Not much, but some of it. Um, so no, I, I think I pressed turbo. Um, and, you know, it, we had, um, you know, we tried for a while to have Gabby and it was, you know, it was amazing, absolutely amazing when it happened for us. Um, and I'd actually said, because my PhD was due to start, and I, and I can remember saying to Mike, well, you know, we'll, we'll try, and if it doesn't happen now, then, you know, maybe after my PhD. And it would be, wouldn't it, that exact point in time that it happened. And, you know. <laughs> but I think that, in some ways, um, I thought, I felt like it was really important to me that... Gabby was able to see that, you know, you can do these things and that you don't have to be defined by other people's idea of your gender role. Um, And that, you know, if you've got something that you can add to the world, then never mind the logistics, you can find a way around that. It's really important to do it. Um, I think in retrospect, I probably didn't give myself enough of a break sometimes with some of that. And it can be a really difficult juggle. Um... But no, I, I think I pressed the turbo button and then never looked back. <laughs> I'm very impressed. And also, I think when people say, oh, you know, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who say, oh, I, I kind of did, took on quite a lot. But I think sometimes when you've got all those hormones flying around, something happens where you're just like, like let's do this next thing. <laughs> and, you know, and however you, you're the only one who had your baby, you know, it's like what, what works for you is what works for you. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes you do kickstart this thing of like, right, I feel kind of energised. Mm. And every, it's like everything that happened before is like old news. So you kind yeah, of like, right, yeah. we're living in the next bit now. Yeah. And I think a bit of me as well was like, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I do this? Mm. You know, there's two of us that created a baby. Why shouldn't I continue to do the things that are important to me professionally and educationally? And, and that, are, you know, I did my PhD because I wanted to make a difference after I had an experience with Mike where another firefighter was severely burned and I thought it was him. You know, and that kind of gut feeling that you have when you think someone that you love might be, might be hurt. You know, I wanted to do that research to stop other people from getting hurt. So I had a, it was really important to me to, to do, you know. So, um, yeah, I think a, a big part of me was kind of like absolutely determined to, to see it through as well. Um, and I've got to be fair, actually, I'm, me and Mike have got quite a tight family unit. And when she was born, he was 
really engaged and really keen. And I shouldn't be, you know, he shouldn't deserve a high five for that because ultimately he put, you know, he he had an equal an equal contribution <laughs> in making that baby. <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I, I might have gestated her, but I couldn't have created her on my own. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but he was very engaged. And I can remember, you know, even things like when I was feeding her, I was I was so touched. She when she was a baby, she would only sleep on my chest. She had to hear my heartbeat, and um, she is as tenacious as me, probably, and twice as stubborn. And so you'd put her down in the cot, and she'd start crying, and then you'd pick her up again, and you'd think, okay, I'll I'll leave her for another couple of seconds, and no, no, she's not stopping, <laughs> is she? And it's like I've got to pick her up again. So she had to hear my heartbeat. So I can remember feeding her and I just managed to get her to sleep. And I was so hungry. It was ridiculous. And Mike had made me spaghetti bolognese. And I just had this craving for spag bol. And he brought it in <laughs> and he'd made it with brown rice. <laughs> I was like, that's fine, I'll eat it. And he went, why are you looking at it like that? And I went, what's the main ingredient of spaghetti bolognese? And he went, well, spaghetti. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He was like, I'll make you some more. I was like, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. I'm just glad that you've made me some food. But bless him, he was holding the plate. Yeah, that's like, quite a tricky had, one with the baby yeah, on the front. Yeah, so I had her She was basically a human chest. napkin. She was, she was a human <laughs> napkin. So, of course, I'm there like a, like a giraffe trying to strain my neck. And bless him, he had the plate and he was literally feeding me this spag bowl brown rice just so I could get some sustenance while I was trying to nurse this child. So, you know, he was... He was really helpful and you know when I kind of think about other women who are in my situation who didn't have a supportive partner or who were doing it on their own Mm. you know I think that they are the most incredible women in the world to be able to drive forward and to do that um, in a way that actually I don't know if I could have when I look back what been on your own with that well I certainly it's couldn't sort of those have point done... in time. Don't really doubt you're capable of anything. <laughs> even, even when you said I couldn't have created her on my own, thinking if anyone could. <laughs> no, I think that you know to be able to have done the PhD, to mm. be able to continue working, and to be able to you know to, to raise a family. I think that the support network yeah. was super important, and I didn't have a huge support network. It was just me and Mike. Yeah, um, and so I, I, that the partnership that we took to doing it, I think, was crucial. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I get the impression just from, you know, hearing you talk today that, that you, when you're talking about trust, but it feels like Mike is very much your person. Like, yeah. you've sort of found someone there that you could immediately just be like, okay, I can be my whole self. And when you have that person with you, it lets you, sets you free to take on the things you want to do, which yeah. is brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I wondered with... Um, so I've lost my thread. I was going to ask you something really good, and then it just popped out of my head. You just have to rest assured it was a really excellent question. But I did wonder where it comes from with you, because I can see that there's a real thread of you never, always wanting to leave things better than you found them. Where do you think you get that from? With, you know, with, with when you said Mike was in an accident, and then mm. you thought, well, because like, sometimes when people would think, oh, if only we, you know, the fire service were trained to respond to things in a different way. But to actually take on the research put forward the case win awards and how it changes how things happen where does that sort of impetus come from do you think um do you know it's a really great question um and I think that for me there is something about the early influences that you have that are super important 
Um, and people talk about a role model, don't they? And they talk about, you know, someone that's inspired them in some way. And, and often when I hear people talk about that, they'll talk about someone amazing who's changed the world in some way, some household name that you'd all know. Um, but I think mine is my grandmother, who had a really big impact on me growing up. Now, my grandparents are Moroccan Jews. Um, my grandmother was from Rabat. My grandfather was from Oujda, and they lived together in Gerada. Um, and in 1948 she was caught up in some anti-Jewish riots and she was attacked with a machete. Um, they actually tried to behead her in quite a frenzied attack. And my grandfather went to collect her body and he pulled her out from what I can only describe as a, a pile of other mutilated bodies. And he pulled her out and she gasped for air. She was still alive. And so as soon as she was well enough, they fled Morocco as refugees and they started again. Now, when my father was terminally ill, my grandparents lived with us because they were helping to care for him. And despite this awful experience that she'd had, she would never, ever talk about what she'd lost or what she'd left behind. But she'd talk about the opportunities they had to build and what they'd done as a result, you know, and the new... When one door closed, another door would open. Um... And, you know, she would even talk about her attacker with loads of love and compassion. And, you know, she'd say things like, I hope that he can forgive himself. I don't want him to lie on his deathbed and, and regret it. I want him to be able to forgive himself because I forgive him. Because, do you know what? Imagine being in an environment filled with so much hate and frenzy that you could do that to another person. I'm sure that he regrets it. Um, she's the most incredible woman and to have those negative experiences but still approach the world through a lens of such love and compassion mm. and empathy for me was a huge inspiration, a huge inspiration and she is someone who no matter what happens in life she will look to do what she can to make something better even if it's only a little bit better that's what she'll focus on doing um, and so I think that seeing her and seeing the way that she responds to the world has been a huge, huge inspiration for me and I take a great deal of influence from that. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think from that, from that capacity, definitely. And I don't always get it right. You know, I have, I have my bad days, I have my moods as much as anybody else does. Um, but you know what? That's human. And when that happens, I'll, you know, like we said earlier on, I'll let myself sit with that feeling. I'll have my, I'll have my evening to mope and feel like crap and, you know, get really grumpy about stuff. But then the next day, that's when I do something. Because you can't control what happens in life. You mm. can't. You can't even control how you feel about it. But you do have some agency over what you do about it next. And no matter how bad the day, tomorrow will always come. The world will turn, the sun will rise, and tomorrow will always come and it's up to you what you do about that indeed you had your grandma sounds like an amazing woman and actually that thing of being able to see the good in people probably mm. is a, a very good way of her to be able to live her life because mm. it liberated her from being you know yeah sort of stifled by an incident that happened that stopped her being able to then live yeah. even though she survived yeah so sometimes having being able to put a perspective on it that makes us cope mm. like that is incredibly powerful yeah. like the mindset of that Absolutely. That's amazing. I found it really helpful when I was experiencing homelessness as well, um, especially when I'd look back on it, because I'd experienced, you know, some really dehumanising things from people. And, you know, like I said earlier on, I'd been punched and kicked and spat at and attacked. And, you know, people shouted at me in the street. And, 
you know, people would look down on me like I was... They'd already judged my worth. They'd already judged my value as being zero. And they treated me like that. And I would always think that, okay, that's you on a bad day. That's one interaction. That's not you as a whole human. On another day, I'm sure you're a very good person. I'm sure that there are people in your life who you love dearly. I'm sure there are people who love you dearly. I'm sure that you do good things in the world as well. I've had a bad interaction with you on a bad day, which I'm sure in the cold light of day you'd regret. Um, and so I'm not going to judge you on that. I'll take that. I'll put it down to a bad, a bad experience, a bad couple of seconds that have come and gone and they're nothing but a, a figment in my memory, but they're gone. And, and I'll give you the benefit of the doubt to know that you also have the capacity to be a good person too. Wow, I think that's an amazing way to look at it. And I can see where you're coming from. But sometimes I've definitely not responded to people in that way. <laughs> <laughs> it might just not have been the first word that came out of my mouth. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I promise to be more Sabrina from here on in. I promise. Um, I was thinking so much of what you're talking about as well is about, I mean, sorry to be a bit, twee with it but it's about response because you're talking about your response to your circumstance then you have to respond in your day job then you have to respond to an incident where you thought Mike was injured and do something about it mm. responding is quite a big big element of what you do isn't it yeah and I've, I've heard you talk as well about hypervigilance is that something that started when you were homeless yeah definitely well probably just before because you know we had quite a difficult time preceding the homelessness and I think it was then that you know you really started to think about the danger in your everyday um you know we had some really difficult times and certainly when I was experiencing homelessness that was that was when it really heightened because you just never knew you never knew what was coming around the corner so there was one place that I used to sleep that was a derelict building and the thing is when you find somewhere that's you know giving giving you a bit of shelter so do other people mm. um and there were lots of other people there that used to sleep there and use it as a drugs den so you know I'd go to sleep and the first thing I'd do is kind of sweep around me to make sure that there were no dirty needles lying on the floor so that, you know, if I rolled over, I wasn't going to roll over onto one of them. Um, but I'd find somewhere to sleep and I would make sure that I knew at least three exit routes. And I'd, in my head, I would plan out what you would do to get out of those exit routes. And I would put things like stack paint cans that I found in a skip by the doorway so that I knew that if I had to escape, then I could slow somebody down behind me and like piles of newspapers I put places if I needed to I could just kind of chuck them in somebody's face to give me those extra couple of seconds to escape so I'd kind of do all of those things and so I found myself whatever situation I was in I would not just be kind of like looking at my surroundings and thinking oh it's a lovely day today I'd be kind of looking around thinking okay what can hurt me and what can I do to make sure that it doesn't? And you'd almost kind of play through those things. And it's it's interesting because um, one of the studies that I talk about in the book um, looks at people that are, uh, that are successful. And it talks about um, people who we're told, aren't we, just visualise success. Visualise success mm. and it's more likely to come. And what this study showed is that um, a group of people were told to just visualise success and another group of people were told to vis visualise the success that you want but also all the barriers that you are expecting to face. Um, and it was the people that also visualised their barriers and what they do about it that one ended up more happy but two ended up more successful at the end of it. 
so I think you know there's there's some method in in my in my madness in that in that sense um and it's certainly kept me safe I know that but there are also times when you know now when the danger isn't anywhere near as severe as the danger I was experiencing when I was sleeping rough you know there are times when you kind of still have that and you kind of can end up feeling quite anxious about things you can still be quite hypervigilant and it manifests in overthinking things um but equally you know there are times when that's been really helpful so there are times for me operationally when I've been at a fire and because I'm constantly hypervigilant and overthinking things I've noticed something like a really subtle change in wind direction that meant we had to completely change the way that we were doing the operations um and you know saved an adjacent building as a result of that otherwise we'd have kind of lost we'd have lost the warehouse and the garages if we'd have just carried on with what we were doing so there are times when it's also been really helpful but I do think just for me personally in terms of life in general I do have a tendency to overthink um but because I overthink I think about what can go wrong and then I think about how we can avoid it and I think in some respects doing that has made me less afraid of the failures and the potential mistakes and the pitfalls because I've already thought about them. I've also then processed how it's going to feel when that happens. Mm. And I've also thought about what I can do, one, to avoid it, but two, to overcome it, the other side of things. Yeah. So I do spend an inordinate amount of time just thinking, but I quite like that as well. And did you do that with your daughter when she was little and thinking of that thing where you sort of worry about all the things that could happen? Oh, my God. It was like spider senses, wasn't it? Because <laughs> that's quite... It can be quite hard to stop that. Yeah. Because sometimes it becomes almost like intrusive thoughts of, like, awful things that could just happen. Yes. But, yeah, I was imagining with you, like, with your hypervision, as you say, like, spider yeah. sense. For, yeah. The whole house the was mix. covered in cotton wool. <laughs> and I'm picturing her on, like, a big, like, helmet on <laughs> Well, fortunately, I think a little bit of risk is healthy as well. Isn't so, it just? Yeah, so she'd have all the padding but no helmet. <laughs> <laughs> There's a metaphor there somewhere. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's so amazing everything you've achieved and I just have no doubt you're going to continue to do great things. Have you got... Are you someone that thinks in terms of planning ahead or are you quite are you more like following your nose with stuff? Um, at the moment, I'm, I mean, I love my career. I love being a chief fire officer. And I think that we've still got a huge amount of work to do in fire and rescue services. Um, and there's a lot of work that I'm doing in my service around culture, which is really important to me. So I'm really enjoying that. The research is something else that's hugely important to me. And I love the decision-making stuff, but I'm really enjoying the work that we're doing with dogs at the moment as well. Yeah. And I really hope that we can find some success in ways to rehabilitate dogs and, and reduce the euthanasia that's happening. In fact, the biggest um, cause of uh, euthanasia for dogs under three are behavioural issues. So there's, you know, there's a real impetus oh, for wow. me in, in doing that. So I'm really enjoying that work as well. Um, but also the opportunity to have conversations like this, to perhaps challenge the way that people are thinking, particularly about gender. Mm. And just there's something for me that's really powerful about getting someone to think differently to the way that they might have done before definitely um and so you know i'm really enjoying doing that work as well so pushing forward on all of those fronts yeah it's very close to my heart as well when i had my first baby who happened to be a boy it it, it was it sort of baffled me how much was expected of him just because he happened to be a boy yeah and i get very uppity about the presumptions that are put on gender from birth, yeah. it drives me absolutely nuts. Yeah. Um, even down to things like why why are dogs tend to be on boys' clothes and cats on girls' clothes, yeah. things like that. Like, what is going on yeah. with the world? And I sometimes feel like the better we've got with conversations 
about um, people being non-binary and redefining their gender as mm. grown-ups, the more binary things have got in childhood yeah. as a sort of weird knee-jerk of yeah. like, well, let's make sure it's very clear when they're... I don't know, I don't get it. Uh, do you know, you're absolutely Still right. Day. I, there's a fascinating study that I wrote about um, that looked at risk, actually, and the way that our risk appetite develops. And there's a huge amount that shows that risk appetite is something that we absorb culturally. It's mm. from our interactions with people and our experiences as opposed to something that's more innate. Um, and there was this lovely study done where psychologists were watching the, uh, parents responding to their children engaging in risky play. Um, they're playing on a fire pole, um, ironically, in a, yeah, in a playground, as it happens. <laughs> and they were looking at the way both mums and dads were responding to boys and girls. And they found when the little boys wanted to play on the fire pole, parents would encourage them. And mm -hmm. if they showed any sign of trepidation, they'd advise someone how to do it independently. they said, come on, you can do it. You're brave. You've got this. You're really strong. You know what to do. Um, whereas when the little girls wanted to play on it, they would spontaneously interject to help significantly more than when they would with little boys. And they'd say things like, oh, be careful. Or wait, wait for me. I'll come and help you. Or be careful you don't get your dress dirty. Things, honestly, things like that. Um, so you think about the messages that are being internalised then. The yeah. little girls are being told, you're delicate, you can't do it on your own, you need help. The little boys are saying, uh, are being told, you're brave, you're independent, you've got this. You fast forward to the world of work. The Hewlett-Packard study showed that on average, women will only apply for a job if they meet 100% of the job criteria, whereas guys would apply if they met 60%. But of course, you think about that internalised message message and yeah. how that plays out it affects your worldview your life chances even your economic success exactly. it's huge and in fact um there was a, a, a another study that i thought was really really elegant in this space that looked at the way that people would respond to both men and women taking mm. risks and what they found was men will take more risks than women i'm not surprised because they've been kind of socially rewarded for it for for generations mm. but also that people would respond more negatively to women who then took a risk mm. and i could relate to that with my experience where people are like oh but you're in the fire service isn't that risky what about your children you know so you can definitely see how people respond to you differently but it's massive the way that we talk to our children and gender stereotypes are set between the ages of five and seven. And there was a lovely social experiment done as a part of um, uh, a campaign called Redress the Balance. It's on YouTube if people wanted to, to have a look. And basically this group of children, primary school children, were asked to draw pictures of a firefighter, a doctor and a pilot. And out of 61 pictures, only four were of women. All of the others were of men. Um, and, you know, it was a lovely piece and these kids were really happy and really excited and, you know, enthusiastically talking about their pictures as they're colouring them in. But then in walks a real-life firefighter, a real-life fighter pilot and a real-life surgeon. And they've got their masks on and then they pull it off and they're all women. And the kids are like, oh, oh, how cool. And then they're just asking loads of questions. And the thing is then, those children's, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of mental files, if you like, with all of that information, they're then changed. And they're like, oh, okay, so that category also has women in it. Done, rebalanced, redressed. Um, and, you know, they're asking all of these questions and they then don't have the same stereotype. It's really easy with children. It can be so much harder 
with adults yeah, to get definitely. to that. And um, in psychology, they've identified something called the backlash effect, which is certainly something that I've experienced, where if you're um, a woman and you challenge a traditional gender role, or if you're a man and you're challenging a traditional gender role, by, for example, doing a job that's usually associated with the opposite gender, mm. or by dressing like the opposite gender, or by looking like a member of the opposite gender, or whatever, then people go, they see that, and it clashes with their mental file, and they backlash. They feel negative about it. They might not intend to. They might not do it consciously, but they, 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 they subconsciously feel negative towards that. Um, and there was a lovely study done um, uh, about a woman called. Um, it was a case study, sorry, uh, based on a woman called Heidi Royson who was this amazing businesswoman who caught the eye of a professor at Harvard Business School. And so he wrote a case study to give to his students and he decided to make two versions. One case study had a different word. That was it. One word changed. Half of the students had the case study of Heidi Royson. The other half had Howard Royson. And when he surveyed them afterwards, they recognised them both as equally successful, so that bit was good. But Howard, they all thought he was a really inspiring leader, an amazing guy. Everyone wanted to go and work for him, but Heidi, they thought she was cold and political and out for herself and very self-promoting, and no one was sure about her aggression, and they didn't trust her. No one really wanted to go and work for her. And the only difference was the word. And that's the backlash effect playing out there because people didn't expect a woman, businesswoman, to be in charge of a company, to be doing the things that she was doing, to be assertive. It was perceived as aggressive, um, even though those are things that were required of the job. You know, isn't that fascinating? Well, I'm a also single word difference. wondering how he broke it to Heidi afterwards. <gasps> the good news is they thought you were really capable. Yeah. But... <laughs> Presented as a man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because no one would stand by the water cooler and go, I really don't like Heidi because she's a woman. You know, I know. But I think people are so reassured by the expectations as well. Because when I've uh, occasionally gone on one of my little rants about, you know, kids' expectation stuff, the gender expectation, a lot of people look at me kind of blankly. I don't think I'm ever, I think it just really bothered me when I had my first, especially because I was like, I don't know who he is yet. Mm. I don't know what he wants to play with or what he wants to wear. And I didn't like the fact that it was all so rigid, uh, rigid yeah. in the expectation. Yeah. Even down to at nursery, you know, he'd be sent home with a sticker with a dinosaur and his little friend who was a girl would have a princess on it. <laughs> and I'm like, why are they getting different stickers? Yeah. You know, I've got another kid who loved the colour pink until he went to nursery and he's like, oh, that's a girl's colour. Oh. And I do my whole, like, actually, in the Victorian times, it was the other way around. And everybody <laughs> goes to sleep. <laughs> I'm really fascinating, <laughs> honest. Um, oh, I know I wanted to ask you, do you still write an email for Gabby with your thoughts and your <gasps> questions and things? I do. That's so yeah, nice you do that. I do. So I started when she was um, really small and I set up a separate email address, a separate email account, and every so often I'll just email her. I don't do it hugely often, you know, a couple of times a year. I'll just send her an email with, you know, thoughts, stuff about what's going on, maybe the odd picture... Um, and just kind of like thoughts about, you know, life in general, because my, I lost my father when I was nine. I never had the opportunity to have a conversation with him as an adult. Um, I only ever knew him in that kind of child-parent way. And so everything I learn about my father is vicariously through other people, through their interactions. I've never had that. And I think doing the job that I do, you do recognise the fragility of life. Mm. And, you know, I could... Nobody knows what tomorrow brings or if tomorrow's even going to come. It's not guaranteed for any of us, is it? So 
I think if I can do that and just have those kind of conversations and musings, then it's something that, you know, if something did happen, then at least she'd have that to to look back on which reminds me I've got to give the email address and the password to someone (laughs) (laughs) yeah where are they (laughs) she's gonna have to play super sleuth and try and find it herself I'm sorry you lost your dad Sabrina I feel like we've spoken a lot about the times when you were homeless but actually losing a parent when you're nine is pretty huge yeah and I bet that that you've had to find ways to still involve your dad in your life now because it's he sounded like he was an amazing guy. He was cool. He was really cool. <laughs> good at poker, so I understand. Very good at poker. A little too good at poker. <laughs> but that's how he and my mum met. So my dad was um, incredibly gifted mathematically and um, would... <laughs> let's just say he was excellent at uh, playing cards and probably <laughs> leave it at that. But my mum was a um, Playboy bunny croupier in the Playboy casinos. And so they met there and the rest was history. Um, But yeah, my dad was pretty amazing. But, you know, even little things like when we got married, we had a picture of him. We had a place at the table with a picture of him in, in, you know, in his place. So we always make sure that he's included in some way. Um, You know, and I I always make the, you know, the, the, the kind of pilgrimage to his grave and make sure the grave is kept clean and tidy. And he's buried in a Jewish cemetery which makes it slightly more challenging because the security you need there is really sad actually. And I'd go there and I'd visit, and you know someone had, had broken in and painted swastikas on the yeah yeah oh honestly it's oh my goodness. so it's a mission to even get to the graveyard. You know you've got to either go to the uh, chairman of the synagogue or you've got to go to the rabbi directly and get a key. You can't have your own key. You've got to go there. You've got to open it. You've got to lock it's up. Whole ritual. It is massive. Yeah. Um, but I always go and make sure that his gravestone is cleaned and I put a candle there. Um, and in uh, in Judaism we don't. We don't put flowers there because flowers can kind of die and, and they wither away. We put stones there. So wherever I travel, I'll pick up a stone and I'll make sure that I'm taking a stone back to him. And I've actually just got back from Morocco. I've, after everything that happened to my grandmother, no one's ever been back to Morocco, but Morocco is a huge part of our mm. of our family life, our family traditions and Moroccan traditions, our family recipes and Moroccan recipes. So I was the first in the family to go back there. And we did this amazing tour all around Morocco. And um, I picked up a couple of stones from the Sahara Desert and uh, and I brought them back. So they're going to go on his grave next summer Aww. and make the trip down there. So, yeah. That's a lovely idea, the stones. Yeah. I like that. It kind of keeps him knowing where you are and where yeah. you're going and where you've gone. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for everything. And... Um, for what it's worth as an extra, I've also felt incredibly safe while you're here. I was Yay! like, you know, normally I'm really scared about house fires, but I was like, if it's sometime within the you know, last like 90 minutes, I just know we would have been all right. <laughs> can I keep you on speed dial, please? Of course, of course. You can have a button. <laughs> I like that idea. Oh, thank you so much. Pleasure. Also, amazing recall with all that stuff. I was thinking what your dad could memorise with cards, you've got with the research. <laughs> Impressive stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think Gabby only got it for the hippocampus thing. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been impressive in nursery, though. Come on. <laughs> oh my word. How do you feel after hearing her story? Pretty flipping amazing, right? Thank you so much to Sabrina for coming over to chat to me. Honestly, I think, you know, I said at the beginning of, of talking to her, there are some people you meet where you just think, I could just sort of sit here and just, like, 
I don't know, think about what you've done without saying very much and be kind of, it's a bit of a marvel. Obviously, it wouldn't make for a very good podcast if all I did was just sit there going, whoa, you're so amazing. <laughs> I think you'd find that quite boring. I think my guests would find that really weird. And I'm nearly done here packing up my stuff for the day. Uh, I'm bound to forget something, aren't I? Uh, I'll tell you what I haven't forgotten. Fabulous hair and makeup. Thank you, Lisa. Honestly, I can see myself in the mirror. I look, wow, it's OTT and I flipping love it. You know, there are some people, aren't there, that kind of get up early and they do actually make sure that they look kind of next level all the time. I might try and build that into my future. I quite like the idea of being that kind of woman. Watch this space. I'll work on it. I'll, I'll let you know how I get on. Anyway, wish me luck with my wandering around Rome. And um, I mean, I'm really looking forward to going home and seeing the kids, of course. But I've got to be honest, I could happily stay a little bit longer here and just bask in the Italian sunshine and eat some more pasta and drink some more Negronis. Maybe in the future. Anyway, have a wonderful uh, week, whatever you're up to. And I will see you next week. Thanks as ever for lending me your ears. Thank you to Richard for editing this while he's at the hotel so that he doesn't, he misses out on coming to a bit of the video shoot with me. He's here with me. He's been helping, but now he's got to edit. Sorry. Um, he's fine with it, really. And thank you to Claire, my producer. Thank you to Ella May for the lovely artwork. Thank you to Sabrina for coming chat to me. But mainly, thanks to you. Otherwise, it's just a conversation into the void. All right, take care. Let's love see you too. Bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.